Well, indeed, this morning we are considering the outcome of Advent. And I want to begin this morning with a bit of a story uh, as we start our time together. And this is a story, it's an amazing story about a man named John. John, for those of you who are kids in the room, grew up in a home in which he was taught about the love of Jesus. He was taught Bible verses. He was taught songs about the love of Christ, just like many of you are. And most of this, was, this teaching came from his mom. John's mother loved the Lord Jesus, but John's mom died at a very young age when John was only seven. And after that time, his father took over raising him, and his father was a hard man. And at 11 years old, he began having John accompany him on sailing ships aboard the boat that he captained. And from 11 to 17, John went on six sailing ships with his father. He became quite a seaman himself. And so his dad, when he was 17 years old, he booked him a trip to sail to Jamaica on another ship. But John, in his heart, had begun to grow, to grow bitter and to grow angry about his mom's death and just life in general. He became a bit of a rebel, and so he actually ran from his dad. He ran away from this trip that was scheduled. He rebelled against his father. He rebelled against the way that his mom had raised him. He rebelled against God, and he ran. But John's father found him. He caught him. And as punishment for him running away from the trip that he had booked for him, he forced him to join the Navy. Now, we have some people this morning who are, are serving or have served in the Navy. I would be fascinated to know if any of them joined out of a punishment from a parent or someone else. But John was forced to join the Navy at just 17, 18 years of age. John, at this point in his life as a young man, was an extremely arrogant, uh, angry, vulgar, rude person. And in rebellion against not only his father, he deserted the Navy. He hid. He took off. He was eventually caught, as you may imagine, and upon being caught, he was publicly beaten and whipped. And then he was given over to a man who literally enslaved him. He became a slave of a man who owned a large farm, a large, uh, farm that was on an island all to itself, and so he couldn't escape, he couldn't get away. But eventually he figured out a way, he got onto a ship, and he became a sailor aboard this, this particular ship. And John was a foul, foul young man. Again, angry, rude, crude. In fact, at this time, believe it or not, sailors were not known for their refined manner of way of life and their, their niceness. And yet John's behavior was so foul that he would shock and embarrass the sailors with which he sailed. He was known as the great blasphemer. That is someone who disrespects and curses God. That was his reputation as just a young boy. But it was aboard this ship where he was a sailor that John began to read the Bible. It was really the only book on the ship, and he began to read the Bible. And one particular night, John's ship got caught in a terrible, violent storm in the North Atlantic Ocean. And this storm, kids, if you can believe this, this was a rainstorm, rain and windstorm on the ocean that lasted for almost two weeks. And the ship's crew became absolutely exhausted from bailing the water off of the ship. They hadn't eaten they hadn't slept. And John in particular was completely exhausted. And so the crew literally took him and they tied him to the helm, to the ship's steerage, and just said, just hold the ship's course. And John was tied there to the ship's steerage from 1 p.m. in the afternoon until midnight, all day and deep into the night. And John had been reading his Bible during that time, and it was on that night, that day, tied to the ship's steerage, 
that John cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord his God, asking that he might save him. And it was this verse in Luke's gospel that, that confronted him. This is from the King James Version, so kids, you're going to have to really pay attention to, to understand it. But this is what it said. If ye then, being evil, know how to good give, give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? And John cried out and asked for the Holy Spirit. He said later of that day, which was March 21st, on that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And he wasn't just talking about the storm. He was talking about the deep waters of his own sinfulness and selfishness. Not long after this, John became the captain of his own ship, had his own crew. But there was a problem you see, the ships that John had been sailing on and now that he was captaining carried the cargo of human lives. People selling people. Human beings selling human beings. You see, John was a slave ship captain. He'd been working in the slavery industry. And after having that experience tied to the helm of the ship that he had been on previously, a hatred began to grow in him for the institution of slavery. And so he left the sea and he joined the fierce fight to abolish slavery in his country. He became exercised and impassioned with seeing what he called those beautiful African faces freed from the scourge of slavery. Not only did he join the fight, but a young Christian man who was involved in the government of that country began to be mentored and discipled by John Newton. Kids, remember this name and ask your parents to read you more about him later. His name was William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce, who was mentored by this man, by now many of you figured out, was John Newton. John Newton and William Wilberforce were really the ones who eventually had a victorious campaign to end slavery in England in the, the mid-1700s. John Newton... The former slave ship captain became a pastor. He had many mentors and mentees. He knew people like George Whitfield and John Wesley and William Cooper and William Carey. In fact, William Cooper was really his closest friend. And in the years after, as he grew older, John Newton, as a pastor, and William Cooper, who became very close, they began to host a prayer meeting on Thursday nights. And for this prayer meeting, they would challenge each other and they had sort of take turns writing uh, hymns and poems or songs about what God had done in their life to help the group that was coming to the prayer meeting worship God from the testimony of their own lives. Many of those hymns survive today. In fact, it's believed that around 1770, preparing for Thursday night prayer meeting, that John Newton, the former slave ship's captain, having experienced what it meant to know, see and know Jesus, wrote these words as a hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I once was blind, but now I see. And in a twist of divine irony, in his final years, John Newton had gone completely blind. 
But the grace of God, which had opened his dark heart to repentance and faith, had brought sight to the spiritual blindness of this dead sinner. This is the change that Jesus can bring when we surrender our lives to him. And while not every one of us will be called to be involved in some global movement or some great change of injustice, at the same time, the case we're making this morning, we're going to make from Matthew's gospel and the story of the wise men, is that Jesus really does change everything, if we will but consider him for real in our own lives and hearts. Pray with me this morning. Our God and Father, as we look at this text from Matthew chapter 2, Lord God, We need the instruction of your Holy Spirit to hear what you want us to hear, to see Jesus clearly. Lord, in some ways, this last month with all the lights and the decorations and the presence and the food, it's it's harder to see Jesus in some ways. Jesus, for who you really are. We thank you for the testimony of John Newton, who was so foul, and yet when he saw you clearly in his life, everything changed. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the possibility of the change that Jesus can bring in your life? Look at the, uh, the story of the wise men for some instruction. Before we look at just two uh, sort of introspective questions this morning, I want to wrestle with the details of this story a little bit. You probably know some of the details. You've sung the song, right? We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse or travel afar. Well, to a large part, that song's actually pretty wrong. And so we're going to look at the details a little bit this morning and kind of see if we can uncover. Well, the first question we want to wrestle with, how many wise men were there and when, it, when did they come? When was it that they visited the Christ child? Well, the, the idea of that there being three wise men really comes from, in the text, the three gifts that they brought, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we'll talk about those things in a little bit. But that's more tradition because of the gifts. We don't really know. There could have been a company of 30 wise men for all we know. And yet we know that they came. And they came, as we'll see this morning, to worship, worship the Christ child. But when did they come? How many of you have seen the movie The Star, the cartoon movie, sort of recent, last five years? How about the movie The Nativity Story? Right? There's something in common with both of those movies in that they show the wise men coming kind of along with the shepherds or right after the shepherds at the time that Jesus is born and is in the manger. But the text actually tells us that the wise men come to the home where Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are staying or living And that Jesus is no longer described in the text in Matthew 2 that Tim and Emma read as a baby or an infant, but as a boy, as a child. And so it's likely that he was at least a few months old and maybe as much as two years old. Of course, we know also from verses 16 to 18 that we didn't read this morning that Herod does away with all the baby boys two years old and under. So we have an idea from those details that Jesus is somewhere from several months to two years old when the Magi... The wise men come. Well, who are the wise men? Are they we three kings? What's a magi anyway? The magi, magi is a general word that describes a non-Jewish, that would be a Gentile uh, scholar, someone who was, was educated and very interested in things like astronomy and philosophy and prophecy. And they would have come from a a place far from God's people, far from Israel, and showed a a tremendous interest in the biblical prophecies. Probably they were interested in prophecies from all kinds of ancient stories and so on and so forth. And they watched the stars to kind of learn of this. Now, what about the idea of them being kings? We don't really know. 
Now, there are, there are several passages, Psalm 68, Psalm 72, Isaiah 49, and, and primarily for you note-takers, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6, talk of kings that would come and visit the Messiah. But it's likely that if they were kings, they're not kings in the sense that we think today like medieval England or something like that, but the world at this time was divided up into a lot of little city-states. And so they might have been kings of these little city-states in different parts of the world. We, we just don't know for sure. But nonetheless, the Magi, these Gentile scholars, come. But where did they come from? Well, the song tells us that they came from the Orient, that is, from Asia. It seems today, uh, what we know from today, that that's probably unlikely. Uh, A little bit more recently, people thought that they perhaps came from Babylonia, which is sort of northern Iraq today, if you know your geography. And even more recently, it's believed that they might have come from Persia. There's some good sort of extra-biblical reasons that they might have come from Persia. And then the most recent thing that I read said that they may have even come just from Arabia, which was even closer. That for the Jewish mind in the first century, when Matthew writes that wise men came from the east, they would have been just thinking just east of Palestine. One little sort of trivia thing for those of you that are interested in such things. uh, There was a scholar, an archaeological scholar named E.F.F. Bruce, a bishop rather, who in the 1920s discovered a Bedouin Muslim tribe in the country of Jordan today. And this tribe's Arabic name, the Arabic name for their tribe, meant they who searched the stars. And there was an oral tradition in their tribe that their ancestors had traveled to Bethlehem in the land of Palestine to honor the great prophet Jesus. And so we don't know, but it's pretty compelling to think about uh, where, where the wise men actually came from. Well, what about the star? What was the nature of the star? If you've seen uh, the movie The Star, The Nativity Story, that's sort of portrayed in different ways. There are a lot of theories about the star. One of the early theories was that Halley's Comet was the star that the wise men had followed. We know now that Halley's Comet streaked across the Middle Eastern sky in about 12 BC, which would have been too early for the birth of Christ, which we think was around three, 4 or 3 BC. Then there's the idea that's popularized in the movie The Nativity Story that the father planet Jupiter and the mother planet Saturn converged with, I think it was the constellation Pisces, and they made like a, a super star that the wise men followed. There's some problems with that, however, in that that convergence was not a full and complete overlap, and that actually occurred at about 7 BC, so again, probably a little too early. Uh, The great astronomer Johannes Kepler thought that it was a supernova, and he wasn't the only one, by the way, that that perhaps that the wise men followed a supernova that would have been in the sky from somewhere from a couple of weeks to a, a couple of months. To be truthful, we're not entirely sure. I I take the line uh, of Dr. Dave Reed, who used to teach the Bible here, when he says that if the God of the universe, if we believe that he came as an infant lowly, infant holy, then believing that God provided a miraculous star for the wise men to follow is not a real stretch for us. And in the text, it seems to indicate that there would need to be uh, a complete miracle in the sense that the wise men travel and they actually come to Jerusalem first. They meet and they spend some time with Herod. And then the star either continues moving or reappears, we don't know, and it leads them to the home where Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are in Babylon. Well, if you're noting and sort of following along, there's kind of a theme here that we don't really know exactly how many wise men traveled to Bethlehem. We don't know precisely when they came. We don't know precisely who they were or whether they were kings or not. And we don't know precisely what the nature of the star that they followed was. We have some educated guesses, but we don't know. 
And I think that perhaps that Matthew writes the text this way because the big point that he wants us to get is a contrast between what God's people should have known and should have been doing and what the Magi who were from far away did, in fact, do. A little bit of a quote from D.A. Carson here. He says this, he says, Matthew neither concerns nor sanctions the Magi's astrology. Instead, he contrasts the eagerness of the Magi to worship Jesus despite their limited knowledge with the apathy of the Jewish leaders and the hostility of Herod's court, all of whom had the scriptures to inform them. What does Carson mean by that? He means that what Matthew is saying is that God's people, Israel, had the scriptures. They knew, as we see in the text, and we'll look at in a minute, they knew where the Messiah was to be born. And yet they kind of didn't really care. They weren't really interested. And yet here come these Gentile, non-Jewish, not God's people scholars who don't have the scriptures. They had some sort of an idea from the astrology and other things. But they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have a relationship with God. And yet they show a great eagerness to pursue the Messiah, to learn more of him. And even as they say in verse 2, to worship him. Well, that brings us to our two big questions to think about and reflect on and meditate on. Uh, this fifth Sunday, if you will, of Advent. Number one, is Jesus a threat to my rule, the rule and control of my own life, or is he what I've been longing for? You see, both in the story of the wise men and in the story of John Newton, we see both things at work. In the beginning, there's this idea in John Newton's life that he was the master of his own life. And then he meets Jesus, and something happens, everything Changes. So let's look at these two questions. Number one, the leaders of Israel, in the text that Tim and Emma read, they knew the Bible, but they completely missed Jesus. Herod asks them, where is the Christ child going to be born? And they tell him, they quote from Micah in the Old Testament, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And yet, from what we know, they showed no interest, made no effort, and never even went to check out for themselves to go to Bethlehem and see if the Messiah was born. They were completely apathetic. You see, some people know the Bible, or know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Let me say that a different way. Kids, it is possible for you to go to Sunday school. It is possible for you to go to Awana. It is possible for you to learn songs about Jesus or do family devotions and yet miss Jesus. Every story, every miracle, every prophecy, everything that we learn in the Bible is meant so that we might know that Jesus came and died for our sins on a cross. And so a big question for us, this is moms and dads, boys and girls this morning, is do I know about the Bible but not know Jesus? Do I know about the Bible or not know Jesus? Well, what about Herod? Herod wanted to protect his own rule. Herod didn't want Jesus to be king because it would mean he would no longer be king. So Herod was very concerned. And Herod sort of represents those who, who know about the Bible, they learn about Jesus, and, and even are convinced perhaps of the truth of what Jesus came to do, but they are uninterested in what it might mean for Jesus to, to have rule and have control in their lives. And let me say it this way. There are times in my life where that's me. But there's an area in my life where I don't want God to have control. I don't want Jesus to rule the throne of my heart. And so this has been a good reflection for me. So let me ask you my second question. Do I have to be in charge or can I trust Jesus? Do I have to be in charge or can I trust Jesus? Is Jesus a threat to my rule or is he what I am longing for? 
You see, the wise men come and they are seeking to honor Jesus. They say, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And in this first verse here, the, the idea is they've come to pay him homage. They've come to honor this Jewish king, the Messiah. But they pursue him. They travel, as the song says, from afar. They seek him. I wonder this Advent season, this Christmas season, again, as we've said this morning, despite all the stuff of Christmas, have you been seeking to know Jesus more? Are you pursuing him like the wise men, seeking to honor him? And then there's that moment of huge, tremendous impact that the outcome of Advent is that when they see him, when they see Jesus, that honor that they intended turns into worship. They intend to honor him, and yet they worship him. And so they give him these gifts. You see, boys and girls, men and women, moms and dads, Jesus had to come, the Bible teaches us in Romans, as a second Adam. You remember the story of Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebel against God. They eat the fruit that he had forbidden. And thereby, by sin, sin enters into the world. Sin enters into my life and your life. Why? Because we are descendants of Adam. In fact, that's why Jesus didn't have an earthly father. Because the sin that we inherit comes through Adam. And so Jesus, Romans tells us, comes as a second Adam to live a perfect life, a sinless life in my place and in your place. But he also comes to bear the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin, for our rebellion, and in to endure the unthinkable. For, all, for the first time in eternity, as it were, Jesus endures the rejection of God the Father for you and me. In this awful moment, at his crucifixion, Jesus hangs on the cross and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Paul Tripp says at this moment, it is his most painful moment of anguish as he takes on the tragedy of our separation from God and himself. That is the moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is that moment that is the entire point of the Christmas story. It is the gift that Pastor Zach talked to us about, God giving us himself. It's why Jesus came. It's why the angels rejoiced at his coming. He came, let's say it this way. He came to be separated from his father for a short time so that we can be accepted as God's child, God's child forever. Forever. It doesn't matter your age this morning or what's going on in your life. Jesus came to be separated from the Father for a brief amount of time so that we can be joined to the Father, his children, for all of eternity. And so the wise men give gifts. And these gifts point us to Jesus. They give the gift of gold that points to his royalty. He is the king of kings. They give the gift of frankincense, which points to his divinity. He is God in the flesh. He is the Lord of lords. And they give the gift of myrrh. Myrrh, which is, points to his passion, that he came to die for our sins. And so in verse 12 it says that they had revealed in a dream that they were to return a different way than they came. They were to go back to where they came, go back to their lives, go back to their studies, whatever it was that, they, that uh, defined their normal lives, but to return by a different way. And if we could sort of play on those words this morning, 
Would it be that we'd come to the five weeks of Advent or maybe just today or whatever amount of times you've been here and all the Christmas celebrations, but that we'd return home a different way? So kids, when you return to school in a week, moms and dads, perhaps when you go back to work tomorrow or you connect with those neighbors as you normally would, that we return a different way. In fact, I want to leave this question on the screen. I want to encourage you for a couple minutes to just in your, where you're sitting, seated, have some reflection, maybe even some conversation about this question. And we're going to rejoin you with our third and final uh, scene from our, our group of skit uh, or little group of actors. So go ahead and do that now.